Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you this morning. Turn to Psalm number 8 in your copy of God's Word or in your Bible app, Psalm number 8. As you're turning there, I want you to think about a time in your life when you've looked upon the vastness of God's creation or looked up at the sky, and what did that do in your soul when you looked upon it? So reflecting on that this week, and I was thinking back even just a few months ago when Mike Presley took a group of men from Gateway on our first backpacking trip and get up to McDill Point and look out over the vastness of that part of northeast Alabama and just the breathtakingness of how far you could see and the beauty of God's creation and what that did in my soul. Perhaps if you travel with your business and you're on the airplanes and you're flying up high and you look down and I love it when you're paralleling an interstate. And you look below and you see these two little tiny lines way below you and all these little dots moving on there. Every dot's got like families and trucks and stuff moving and you're thinking, wow, we are so small. Or perhaps it's when the last lunar eclipse was. If you were like us and went out in the backyard late at night and looked up at the moon to watch the eclipse happen and to gaze at this body of mass circling around our earth up there and it's 239,000 miles away. It's the closest body, you know, to our earth. And to gaze upon the beauty of God's creation or to even to step back during the eclipse when it got so dark and to see the 2,000 or so stars that you can see on a visible night in the countryside. When you have those moments in your life, what happens in your soul when you look upon God's creation? That's what we see in the psalm we're coming to today, in Psalm number 8. The author of this psalm is pondering God's creation, but he doesn't stop there. He ponders God's creation. That causes him to ponder the character of God. As he ponders creation and ponders the character of God, it changes him. He begins to respond in his praise to God. Over these first few weeks in the Psalms, we've been intentionally looking at different types of Psalms so you can see some of the, the breadth of emotion you see in the Psalms. Two weeks ago, we started with Psalm 1 and saw a Psalm of wisdom that shows us what it looks like to follow after God. Last week, we saw Psalm 3, which was a lament Psalm, a Psalm when people are dealing with the hardships and sufferings of this life. Today, we come to Psalm 8. It's what some call a praise Psalm, a Psalm that is a person worshiping God in song and calling others to do the same. And we'll go deeper in each of these types of psalms in the weeks to come, but these first weeks we want just kind of an overview of what we'll see in this amazing book of the Bible. This week we come to another psalm from King David, the same person who wrote Psalm 3 last week. And we don't know exactly what was happening historically in the moment he wrote this one. It doesn't tell us. But we know he's gazing on the vastness of God's creation. It makes him ponder the character of God. And he responds to God in praise and calls us to do the same. So as you read Psalm number 8, I want you to look for what do we learn about God here? Because it's more than just about the stars or the sky. What do we learn about God here? As we think about that, what do we learn about us? Because what we learn about God is going to shape what we learn about ourselves. And then how do we respond? So as you read Psalm 8, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about us? And how do those truths shape us? So can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? We read Psalm chapter 8. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. We're going to start back at... I'm calling it verse zero, the introduction at the very top before verse one here. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. Verse one. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this day as we see what King David reflects on as he was looking upon the vastness of your world. Even as we've sung this morning about you, the God of wonders beyond our galaxy, even as we've sung this morning about you who are the creator of all things, God, I pray the psalm of King David would come alive to us, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to new awe and new wonder at who you are and your character and what that means about us, your people. So God, would you have your way through your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, normally at this point in a sermon, I'm going to give you a main idea that I want you to see for the sermon, and I'm not going to do that this morning until the end, because David is painting a picture here for us. This is poetry. This is very different than what we've looked at when we've studied through Ephesians on this. He's not writing an argument here for us. He's not writing a letter. He's painting a picture that he unfolds in this psalm. So I want us to kind of tackle this psalm by seeing these truths unfold and then looking at how it changes us. So we're going to begin. I want to see two truths in this psalm. Then I want to think about how those truths come together to change us. The first thing I want you to see from this psalm is simply this. God is big. Pretty simple, but very life-altering. God is big. By big, I mean not just spatially big, but by great, beyond anything we can comprehend. God is amazing, awesome, majestic, big, great, whatever adjective you want to use there to help your mind think about the vastness, the greatness, the bigness of God. And all throughout Psalm 8, David is showing us in so many different images the bigness of the God that we serve. Go back to verse 1. Let's just look at several of these in these first few verses. O Lord, our Lord. Now let's stop there. There's a lot in those first few words for us right there. O Lord. We see that we saw this last week. We see the word Lord in all capitals here. This was the name Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God, his revealed name for his people. And when David proclaims Yahweh, he's showing us a lot about who God is. In fact, I want you to see it from Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Because if we go all the way back to Exodus, we see one of the places where the name of God is revealed for us. In Exodus chapter 3, God is appearing before Moses, and he's going to use his covenant name with his people. So Exodus chapter 3, verse number 13. I'll have it up on the screen for you as well. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Listen to this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, now here's the word Yahweh that David is using here. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So when David is using the name Yahweh here, what is he doing? He's taking the people back in his own heart as well, and the people who are listening, to back to the book of Exodus, to the revealed name of God. When I am who I am, when the great I am says, I am Yahweh, this is the name you are to know me by. Friends, when they hear the name Yahweh at the time, there was so much about God's character and God's greatness that was communicated to them. When they heard the name Yahweh, they were reminded that God is self-existent, that God needs nothing. This is, I am who I am. 
that is speaking to them. This is a God who needs nothing, who didn't make humanity because he was needy or lonely or needed anything. He was a God who was totally self-existent, who needed nothing. This is Yahweh, the great I Am, who made people because he had a purpose, not because he needed anything. Even in the name Yahweh, David is proclaiming the self-existence of God. But not just the self-existence of God and his bigness. In proclaiming the name of Yahweh, David is also proclaiming that God is eternal. Notice in verse 15 there, he says, This is my name forever. And that's something to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's name forever. That God has no beginning and no end. God is eternal. He has always existed. God existed before there was time. If we want our minds to hurt on the bigness of God, as you try to sleep tonight, ponder this, that... A hundred trillion years before there was even time, God was. And I am who I am, Yahweh was there. When there was not even time, when there was not even a succession of moments, time is a creation of God. God existed before there was even time. Let your mind hurt on that trying to go to sleep tonight, right? That that God is eternal. He is forever. He's not bound to a succession of moments like we are. So even back in Psalm Psalm 8 here, when David proclaims, Oh, Yahweh... He is proclaiming the greatness of the covenant God. He's proclaiming the God who has always existed, who is eternal, who is self-existent, who needs absolutely nothing. There's even more in that in Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He says God's name is majestic, and by name it's not just the name, it's all the name represents. In the Bible, when it talks about someone's name, it's talking about their character, All this represented by that. And David's saying, when I think about your name, yes, Yahweh, yes, I am who I am. But when I'm thinking about you, I'm thinking about your character, God. And he is inspired. He is awestruck at the character of God. God is perfect in all he does. And so here David, in his first few words, is proclaiming for us that God is self-existent, that God is eternal, that God is perfect in all that he does. But there's one more here in this first verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Even here you see the word all the earth. God is everywhere. He is, we like to use the word omnipresent. He is everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to get away from God's presence. And we will see that in some other Psalms as well. And so in just these first little 13 words of Psalm 8, we see God is self-existent. God is eternal. God is perfect. God is everywhere. We see the bigness of God on display. But there's more. Look at the next part of verse 1. David says, you have set your glory above the heavens. What is God's glory? It is his brilliance. The beauty of his presence, the brightness that surrounds God. It's the summary of all of who God is. But David kind of tricks me a little bit here on this one. He doesn't say what I expect. In verse 1 he says, how majestic is your name, how majestic is your character in all the earth. I would expect him now to say, you have now also set your glory in heaven. It doesn't say in heaven. What say you've set your glory where? Above. Wait, wait, how is that possible? There's earth, there's heaven, there's universe, and now he's saying outside of all that, God has set his glory. God's glory, his beauty, his brilliance is so much that even heaven and earth cannot contain it. The brightness, the brilliance of all of who God is, is even above all of his creation. It is everywhere. The glory of God is that big that there's no limitation, nothing that can contain the glory of God. So what else could David say at this point about God? Well, he continues, verse 2, trying to help us see how big God is. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, 
You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What's David trying to do? He's trying to show us that God is all-powerful. Again, the word we use here is omnipotent, omni-all-potent power, omnipotent all-power, that God has all-power. He says God has established his strength. Now, if you're reading out of the older NIV, you're going to read different here in this verse. It's going to say God has established praise. And there's a reason they translate it praise, but if you go back in the Hebrew, which this was written in, the word that she used there actually means strength or might. There's an application of praise we'll see in a little bit, but the point here is God has established strength. God is showing his might against his enemies. He can still the avenger. He can still the enemy that no one can stop God. But this is an interesting imagery for God's power because in that very first part of the verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've shown your strength. What in the world is, is David doing here? Why is he talking about the all-power of God? We're saying God does it through the mouths of babies. Well, look at 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven on the screen, because this is what David, I think, is doing here. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. David's making a point for us here in Psalm 8, that God's power is so might. It's so mighty. God can do whatever he wants and is not reliant upon human wisdom to do it. God doesn't need armies to get his kingdom to advance. God doesn't need the strong, mighty intellectuals for the gospel to go forth in this world. God can work through whatever God wants. He's that mighty. He can even take the mouth of a baby to silence the Avengers, to stop his enemies. He is so big. He is so powerful. He is so glorious that he can work through whatever he wants to, including the praises of a little one to accomplish his purposes on the earth. He is that powerful. But David's not done yet. He's still pondering the power of God. And so look at what he does in verse 3 on the power of God. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, he now stops and goes and ponders creation to reflect on the power of God. He lo- he's looking up on a starlit night, and he sees all the stars. And people say if you go out on a clear night in the countryside outside the city, you can see about 2,000 of the multitude of stars in the sky. So imagine David out looking at 2,000 stars on the night, looking at the moon, and he's proclaiming to God, verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. He's pondering the creator. He's going back to Genesis chapter 1 and looking at the creation account. So Genesis chapter 1, verse number 14, you see what David is alluding to right here. In Genesis 1, 14, and God said that there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So David is going out, looking at the stars that God put in place, and he is reflecting on God creating them in one day in Genesis chapter 1. Now, how many stars are out there? got on a little rabbit trail this week, and I was pondering this and pondering the vastness of God's creation. According to the people, the scientists at University of California, there are 10 billion galaxies in existence. I know there's some speculation in this because we don't, you can't count them all, but they speculate there's 10 billion galaxies. We are in one of those 10 billion galaxies. Our galaxy that we are in has 100 billion stars. 
So we're one of 10 billion galaxies. Our galaxy has 100 billion stars. If our galaxy is normal for the other galaxies, if you do the math, that means in the sky are 1 billion trillion stars in existence. This is coming out of scientists at the University of California, and they admit this is probably a conservative estimate that there's 1 billion trillion stars in the sky. Lest we think that was hard for God, go back to Psalm 8, verse 3, and listen to how David describes God placing 1 billion trillion stars in the sky. When I look at your heavens, the work of your mighty effort and much might of your whole being, the work of your what? Fingers. Put yourself typing on your keyboard and the amount of effort that takes. He's saying, God, when I think about the 1 billion trillion stars, it is the work of but your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set. Think about like setting a table that God has just put in place. So in this one day of creation, God sets in place through the work of his fingers. God doesn't literally have fingers. He's a spirit. This is an image for us. It's an image for the little effort it takes to put the plate on the table, to type something with your fingers. Through his fingers, through setting something, God spins into place one billion trillion stars with a hundred billion stars in each of the ten billion galaxies and doesn't work up a sweat in the process. The psalmist is trying to help us get a vision of the awesome power of our God, that he is that big he can make one billion trillion stars without any effort. So in all these things, what is David trying to show us? He's trying to show us quite simply that God is big. That this God we know is self-existent. He needs absolutely nothing. This God we know is eternal. He had no beginning and will never have an end. This God we know is perfect in all that he does. This God we know is everywhere. There's nowhere he can escape his presence. He is glorious. He's beautiful and so beautiful and so bright that not even heaven and earth can contain his brilliance. And he's all-powerful to the point of being able to spin billions of trillions of stars into place with almost no effort. David's trying to get a picture painted for us that God is big. But as he paints that picture for us, that forces us to another point that we often in our flesh don't like to think about. That is quite simply, if God is big, friends, we are small. God is big, but we are small. Listen to verses 3 and 4 together, because this is a flow of a sentence in David's psalm here for us. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, verse 4. Here's the question that must come. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Friends, when I fly in an airplane and we're following either 65 somewhere going north and you're looking down and it's like, man, those cars seem so insignificant, so tiny, those little dots down on the interstate below. Now take the perspective back from a God who can spin trillions of stars into place. Who are we? We are so small and so tiny and so frail and so weak. In fact, in verse 4, the word that's used here for man is obviously a general word that means men and women, people in general. But it's not the normal word for people that is used here. It's a specific word that conveys frail, mortal people. So the psalmist is saying, what are us frail, limited, mortal people to you, God, when you are so vast and so big in all of these things? He's forcing us to a contrast. God is big and great and glorious, and we are tiny and small and really, in the scope of things, very insignificant in that. And that's exactly what David wants us to see. Because, friends, in our pride, in our self-focus, in our self-absorption, it is so easy to lose sight of that. And we begin to act like we are the center of the universe. We begin to act like our problems are so massive. We begin to act like our rights 
are so important, that our contributions are so significant, and we begin, if we're not careful, to act like God owes us something because we are so amazing. And David is saying, stop. And I would insert, if he was writing this today, turn off your TVs, put down your phones, turn off your radios, and go look at the stars tonight. And realize all those problems seem so massive, all those rights we want to claim, all those contributions we think we're making, all the stuff we think God owes us. Go look at the stars and realize how massive God is and how small and insignificant we are. God is big and we are small. Now, friends, how does that truth affect us? Because if we do not know Christ, this could really lead to despair and hopelessness. What do you mean my life is small and insignificant in the course of history? What does it mean I'm tiny? And it could lead to despair. But friends, if we know God, and I pray that each of you do know God in a personal way, it should have the exact opposite effect. The truth that God is big and we are small shouldn't lead us to despair. It should lead us to hearts full of hope and amazement. It should lead us not to despair, but lead us to all. If we know God, this truth that he is big and we are small should lead to hope and to all in our life. In fact, I think there's three things in this psalm that show how we should respond to this truth that God is big and we are small. There's three things I think we should be amazed about in this. Number one is this. We should be amazed that we can even know this God. We should be amazed that we could even know this God. Consider again, God is self-existent. He needs nothing from us. God is eternal. He existed before there was time. He is perfect. He is everywhere. He is glorious. He is all-powerful to spin universes into being at the sound of his voice. And we can know him in a very personal way, friends. We should be amazed by that. Look at verse 1. Look at how David approaches this powerful, awesome God. He says, Oh, Lord, our Lord. David does not shrink back from approaching the God who spun a billion trillion stars into being, who could strike us dead at the sound of his voice if he wants to. David doesn't hold back. He goes to God and boldly proclaims his covenant name, Hey, Yahweh, I am right here. And he can approach God with his covenant personal name on this and says, Oh, Yahweh. And then he follows up with our Lord. Notice the word our. David has confidence approaching this magnificent, big, all-powerful God. He knows God and is known by God. How is that possible? Well, quite simply, in the Bible, it's always because of faith. Faith is belief and trust in the character of God. A belief and trust that changes us, that wants to know him. David wrote this before the time of Christ. He had faith, though, in who God was. He had trust in the character of God. And he had hope that a Messiah would come who would rescue the people. Friends, we are on the other side of history now. We now still are saved by faith in Christ. We just now know who he is. We know who the Christ is. Friends, if you were, as I was reading this, if some of this sounded familiar to you, there's a reason it does. Look back at verses 4 through 6 here. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands and put all things under his feet. You may be thinking, this sounds really familiar, and there's a reason why it should sound familiar. Now, David, in writing this, he's not doing a messianic prophecy. He's not doing a prophecy of the coming of Christ. But the author of Hebrews takes this truth about how God views his people and applies it to Christ. Let us see how we could even know God. So Hebrews chapter 2, I want you to see it on the screen. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. See if this doesn't sound familiar. 
the author of Hebrews, and we do not know who it is, says this, it has been testified somewhere, hence the somewhere is Psalm 8. Here it is. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So now the author of Hebrews is now applying what we just learned to Jesus. Now listen to the rest part of verse 8 here. <clears throat> now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Verse 9. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what is the author of Hebrews doing? He's reminding us from this imagery of Psalm 8 that the one who will fulfill all these things is Christ. He is the one who suffered and bled and died so that you and I could approach God, the one who can speak the galaxies into existence, without fear. Christ suffered and tasted death for us so that we could approach a perfect and holy God who otherwise would be struck down in his presence because he's so holy. Because of what Christ did, we can go to the God who is so glorious and so bright and so brilliant we could not stand to see him apart from Christ has made a way. God is big. We are small. We should be amazed that we can personally know him. That's not the only thing I think we should be amazed about from this psalm. I think King David is amazed by even more than that. The second thing I think this truth should change us to is to help us be amazed that God personally cares for us. That God personally cares for us. Not just I can know God in a theoretical sense or from a distance, but that I can be personally cared for by God. God's bigness and greatness does not make him distant. Rather, it's quite the opposite. It makes him very near because he cares. Friends, the truth that God is big and I am small doesn't make my life meaningless. It doesn't make your life meaningless. Rather, it gives great meaning. When you think of the bigness of God and to realize that he has chosen in his sovereign will to pour out his love and care and affection on you. Your life has great meaning, not because you're amazing, but because God has chosen to pour his care, his love on you. Look back at verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You notice what the type of questions David is asking here? He says, what is man that you're mindful, that God is mindful of his children? To be mindful means you think about someone, you think positively about someone. If you're in love with someone, you're mindful of them. You think about them in a very positive way. And David is reflecting on the bigness of God and the smallness of us. and saying, God, it's possible, but how can it be true that you are mindful, that you think positively towards us? God should strike us dead. But because of what Christ has done now, he can look on us and be mindful of us. And that being mindful leads to action. It's the last part of verse 4. And the Son of Man that you care for him. He cares to act in goodness towards a person. This God who is so vast, who's so big, who's so glorious, not just has made a way for us to know him, he cares for us. And not just one time, the, the tense of the Hebrew here is the imperfect tense, which means it's continuous. He cares and keeps on caring and keeps on caring and keeps on caring and keeps on caring. What are we? God, you're big, we're tiny, yet you care and keep on caring and keep on caring and keep on caring for us. As so we think of the bigness of God and how small we are, it should lead us to awe and amazement that we can know God even, but also to be amazed that he personally cares for us in his love. There's one last thing David highlights here that I think we should be amazed about. And that is this big God 
has given responsibilities to us. This big God who needs absolutely nothing because he's self-existent has given responsibilities to us here. David highlights one in particular, but I think there's others implied here. The one David highlights is God has given us a responsibility to care for his world. God didn't need to do that. God didn't even have to make the earth, but he chose to do that. He didn't have to create people, but he chose to do that. And he, didn't, and he could have taken care of the world. He could send angels to care for the world, but he didn't. He gave us a task to care for his world all the way back in Genesis 1. So look at Psalm 8 where David alludes to this. And starting in verse 6, he's speaking about people here that God loves. You have given him, people, dominion over the work of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. David is painting a picture for us of birds and fish to help us see the totality of the earth. He goes, guess what? God put you on this earth to care for his creation. Because that's amazing that God has given us responsibilities on his earth. Maybe there's two more implied in this psalm that are not direct, but I think are right there for us to see of tasks that the God who needs nothing has given to us. Look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Can I suggest from this verse, one of the responsibilities God has given to us is to make him known. He could choose to write his name in the sky. He could choose to reveal himself however he wanted to, but he's revealed himself to us and he now calls us to go reveal him to others. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's nowhere on earth you can go to flee from God's presence. All of his creation is proclaiming his greatness, but the reality is most of the world has no clue who he is. They look on the vastness of the stars at night. They look on the vastness and the beauty of his creation, and they have no clue who the God is who spoke all of this into being. Many have never even heard his name. His name is majestic in all the world, but much of the world doesn't have a clue who the name is. Friends, I'll never forget my very first mission trip many, many years ago was to Vietnam. And I was in Ho Chi Minh City, and I was working with university students, and I'd take them to coffee shops, and I'd talk to students who had PhDs who were intellectual and far smarter than I was. And we get talking about life and what we like to do, and I'd ask them, have you ever heard of Jesus? And these are people fluent in English who studied global events, who knew everything happened, and they're like, I have no idea who that is. Who is that? Is that one of your friends? I mean, I'm in a city of 8 million educated people connected to the Internet, and they've never heard the name of Jesus before. Now, as I walked around Vietnam, it's a beautiful country. God's character is on full display there, but the people are blind to it. We have a responsibility to make God known to others. That's what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how then, here's the question, will they call on him and who they not believe? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Friends, there are millions upon millions upon millions of people all over this world who've never even heard the name of Jesus. And some of them are right here in Montgomery. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 15 then. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God could choose to reveal himself to the people in Vietnam and the people in Montgomery any way he wants. But he's chosen to send the message through us, his people, that he cares for. And we're going to go a lot deeper on this theme in the month of October. A lot of the psalms are about God's glory in the nations. We're going to spend October looking in that. But for now, realize in the bigness of God and all he is, he needs nothing. Yet he's chosen to give his people responsibility to care for his earth. And he's given his people the responsibility to help the world realize how majestic his name really is. 
there's one more responsibility God has given us that should lead us just all that we can do this. He's given us the responsibility of praising him. He's given us the responsibility, the task of praising him, of singing how majestic his name is. Again, look at verse 9 again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David is not saying this dryly or passionately. He is proclaiming in song to God, O Lord, our Lord, you are majestic. He is singing to God of the greatness of God. And he begins and ends the psalm with this. And it wasn't just for David to sing. Go back to verse 1, to that, again, what I call verse 0, the introduction of all this. Notice the very top, to the choir master. David's recording of this was his soul overwhelmed as he thought about the bigness of God and how tiny and insignificant he as king of Israel was. And it just led him to sing a song as he was amazed. But he wanted others to see how big God was and how small we are so they could be amazed as well. So he gives this to the choir master for all the people of Israel to sing. And then the next phrase says it was according to the Giddeth. And friends, no one has a clue what that is. I have read scholar after scholar and commentator, and, and no one has the foggiest idea what a Giddeth is. The best guess is either a musical instrument or some type of musical thing. They all think it has something to do with music. So we're not sure what a Giddeth is, but it has something to do with singing to God as our best guess in this. The point is in all this that David was so overwhelmed with the bigness of God, how small and insignificant he was. He was amazed that he could know God. He was amazed that God cared for him personally. And he was amazed that he had responsibilities in God's world and he can't contain himself. And so he sings in song to God and praises and calls other people to sing to God and praises. Friends, the reason we sing to God in church is not just because of some tradition, because some have, because God is so big and we are so small, we can't help but contain ourselves. And we have to proclaim in musical song to God how amazing he is because the music calls forth emotions that help us realize how majestic God's name in all the earth is. So in light of that, I now want to give you the main idea of the psalm. But I normally would have done at the beginning. It's quite simply this. And Julia said this would have been a good week for having all the young kids in, right? Here's the idea. God is big. We are small. Live amazed. And that's really, I think, what King David's trying to do. He's trying to help us see God is big. He is self-existent. He needs nothing. God is glorious. Even heaven and earth can't contain his glory. God is eternal. He exists outside of time. God is holy. He's perfect. He's huge. He's massive beyond anything we can fathom. And friends, we are small. Yet in our pride and our flesh, we get that reversed so often. And we act like we're big and we're important and we're significant. Friends, our significance is simply in the fact that we know God and we are loved by him. God is big, we are small, but friends, that should lead us to live amazed. Can I suggest something for us? If we live amazed, we can't help but worship. And by worship, I mean more than just praise. Praising God in song is worship, but the Bible describes worship as our whole lives, not just our song. Friends, if we live in awe of God, if we are amazed by God, we will worship. Yes, that means we will sing songs. We will be joyful in our singing to God if we're amazed of him. But it also means if we're in awe of God, we will worship him by pursuing holiness because it'll be a longing in our hearts to be holy because we know that's what he's called us to do. If we live in offerings, we will worship God as we open the scriptures because we want to hear from this big God who can create a hundred billion trillion galaxies but also has written a word to us. We will open it longingly, expectingly. If we live in offerings, we will worship. Can I suggest the opposite is true also? If we have lost all of God and amazement of God, we don't worship. 
If we've lost the amazement of him, our souls grow dry. Singing praises of God becomes boring to us, and we'd much rather scroll through Instagram than sing the, of the amazement of God. If we've all lost the awe of God, we have little desire to worship, and the pursuit of holiness in our life feels like drudgery. It feels like pointlessness in us to fight against sin and to fight for holiness, and we'd rather just live like the world because it seems easier. If we've lost the awe and the amazement of God, we'll have little desire to worship God by reading his scripture because it'll just be dry to us in just a box we check off on our to-do list for our daily quiet time. And we'll find a million other things we'd rather do besides open the book of the God who has created the world, who has spoken to us. If we live in all, we worship. If we have lost all of God, we have little desire to worship. And friends, can I just suggest if we need all of God, let's do what King David did. Let's go look upon his creation. Let's turn off all those things that distract us. And let's go find a cloudless night so we can just stand outside and look at the billions of stars, the 2,000 or so of which you can see, and ponder Genesis 1, that God spoke these into being. Let's go up and go for a hike and go sit on a mountain point, even if it's just a, up to Lake Martin, not far away, and just go stand out on a point and look over the beauty of God's creation. Why God shaped this with the work of his hands and to marvel that God created such beauty and marvel that he gave his eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Let's also do what King David did. Let's go think about God's character as well. David didn't just stop with creation. He pursued it and then looked at God's character as well. And so let's go open God's word expectantly to see the awe of who God is that we can even know him. God is big, friends. We are small. Live amazed. So I want to ask you, when was the last time you felt a sense of awe and amazement in the presence of God? When was the last time your relationship with God wasn't just a habit of something you do on a Sunday or a habit of a quiet time or reading a devotional because you're supposed to? When was the last time that your pursuit of God was an overflow of awe and amazement? That you were so overwhelmed at the thought that God is so glorious and is so big and you are so small, but yet he loves you and cares for you and has called you and chosen you and adopted you and taken you his enemy and made you his friend and seated you at his table and poured out his grace upon grace upon grace in his life. When was the last time you felt that sense of awe and amazement? Friends, if it's been a while, can I just simply suggest this morning as we sing your prayer to God to be, God, would you restore to my heart a sense of awe at who you are? Because, friends, if we will have a sense of awe at the bigness of God and get a reality check about our own selves, those problems that seem so big all of a sudden become a lot smaller. Those rights we demand all of a sudden we realize we can quickly part with. All those things that we cling to we can let go of because they're so insignificant compared to the greatness of, O Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, you are all glorious. You are bigger than anything we can fathom or dream or imagine. Where I'm just still overwhelmed at the thought that you could speak. And in one day, at the sound of your voice, a hundred billion trillion stars spin into existence. You speak and this world comes into being. At the sound of your voice, we see throughout the New Testament, dead are given life and miracles happen. God, you are so powerful. God, would you forgive us for losing sight of your bigness? And we get so wrapped up, and I get so wrapped up in all the cares of this world, and all these things in our life, and all these problems that seem so big. God, they're tiny compared to you. Lord, in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters, God, this week, would you restore to us a sense of awe and amazement at your bigness, at your greatness, at your glory. Because, Lord, if we get the right perspective of you that King David had here, 
Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, everything else will fall into place. If we understand your glory and your greatness, Father, it will change how we view our trials and our problems. God, it will change what we spend our money on. It will change how we order our time. It will change everything if we're restored to a right view of you, which puts the right view of ourselves back in place. Where we can't create that view. We can't change our heart affections for you. But God, you can stir our heart affections this week. So Lord, in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters, this week would your Holy Spirit so fill each one of us and stir our affections for you, O Lord, that we have fresh senses of awe and wonder at you. I pray as we see the beauty of your creation, the stars at night, the mountains, the trees, anything we might see this week, that we would see your handiwork and like David, be reminded of your power. God, I pray as we see other believers singing to you and rejoicing in you. God, that it would stir our heart to want to sing to you and to think about you. Father, as we have other friends around us talking about what they're reading in your word, I pray that would stir our hearts to want to read your word out of a sense of expectancy, of hearing the voice of the one who spoke the world into being. God, would you give us much grace to warm our heart affections to where we long for you more than we long for ourselves and anything in this world. God, we can't manufacture that, so we ask you to give the grace upon grace we need this day. And Lord, we will give you the praise for what you do this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing about the glory of Christ?